Hey, this episode talks about domestic violence and euthanasia. Please take care. Welcome to Narcissistic Abuse Rehab. My name is M. Today we're discussing the true story of how a broken family court enabled the coercive control of Catherine Kazanov. In this episode, we delve into the shocking story of Catherine Kazanov, a Westchester attorney so gifted she once worked with New York Governor Kathy Hochul. However, Catherine's legal expertise proved to be no match for the dysfunctional family court system, where coercive control is routinely enabled. A mother of three, Catherine alleged that she suffered years of punishing post-separation abuse at the hands of her ex-spouse, Alan Kasanoff. She also held the view that the family court allowed Alan to use a discredited psychological theory to gain sole custody of Catherine's beloved children. Under the crushing pressure of Alan's vindictiveness, Catherine not only lost her children, but also her home, job, finances, and health. Now, if you've read my article about the correlation between post-traumatic stress and mortality in women, then you're already aware of the adverse health outcomes linked to coercive control. For those interested, there's a link in the show notes. In a Facebook post dated May 27th, Catherine wrote, quote, Dear friends, family, and supporters, it is with profound heartbreak that I hope none of you ever experience that I am writing my last post ever. Today, I will be ending my own life. I will be doing so in a dignified and idyllic setting in Europe. There are simply no other options left. In the last four years of my life, I have woken up to a nightmare like no other. I can no longer endure the abuse and terror of Alan Kasanov, who has spent the last four years mercilessly trying to incarcerate me on false charges, as recently as March 2023. I have also endured the emotional devastation of being without my children for so long, homeless from Alan's repeated ex parte evictions of me from the homes I own and rented, deprivation of my property and obliteration of my life savings, the loss of my two dogs, the loss of my career and reputation, and the concomitant humiliation and ostracism from all of this. Perhaps, if I had the physical endurance to keep going, I would, but with a new terminal health issue that will soon be severely limiting my physical strength as well, and with no protection from our courts, I cannot keep running from Alan. I was recently diagnosed with a virulent and life-ending cancer. After having had breast cancer twice in my life already, I cannot go through debilitating chemo, surgeries, and radiation again, this time with a dire prognosis and with Alan fighting me, quote, until he dies, end quote, and no court intervention whatsoever. Those were his exact words to me in an email he sent on March 19th, 2023, so please understand why I did not share this news widely. If Alan had known about my health issues, he surely would have tried that much harder to end my existence, end quote. Catherine attached a Dropbox link to her post containing a cache of evidence, including court filings, legal documents, medical records, and videos. Audiovisual evidence of Alan's alleged abusive behavior was shared on social media platforms, including TikTok, where it went viral. Joining us today 
is acclaimed journalist and divorce coach Amy Polacco, known for her Pulitzer Prize-winning work and for breaking Catherine's story in Ms. Magazine. Amy is also the author of a highly anticipated book that delves into strategies for navigating manipulation. Together, we're going to explore Catherine's story and pull back the curtain on the family court as a venue for coercive control and the commodification of justice in child custody disputes. Welcome to Narcissistic Abuse Rehab, Amy. Thank you for having me. I am a big fan of your work and your podcast, so I think it's fabulous. Thank you. It's an honor to have you here to share your expertise on this topic. We have a lot of listeners who are in similar situations to Catherine. There's this myth that education and social status make people immune to coercive control, but that's not true. Catherine's case is a prime example of how the family court can be used as a theater for post-separation abuse. So, Amy, in your opinion, what needs to happen in the family court system to prevent this injustice? Well, let me just start by saying that Catherine's story and so many women's and some men's actually you know, are absolutely heartbreaking. And this is not just a New York problem. It's across the country and around the world, which I'm sure we will get to. I think that the case highlights the fact that uh, custody evaluators are given way too much power in the courtroom. And I've done a lot of reporting on this for the stories I have written starting back in 2021 when I did the first story on Catherine's case and also another woman, Kobe Jane. And it was entitled Empty Home for the Holidays because these two women had lost custody of their children in one of these uh, cases. And uh, it, it was unbelievable, right? But there are so many more mm. like the two of them. Um, I have to say that I did think Catherine was the exception. And I thought to myself when I met her for that interview the first time, that, as you said, here she was a special counsel to the governor of New York. Here she was a former corporate litigator, <laughs> former U.S. assistant attorney, you know, family court system. You know, you're not going to beat this one. And I was wrong. So I think that says a lot. And I've said many times in my articles, if Catherine Kasanoff couldn't not just beat, but survive mm. this family court system. Who in the world can? Uh, And so I think that the parental alienation issue is a huge one that is pervasive in our courts. You know, it started with Richard Gardner coming up with this theory. It's parental alienation syndrome, right? And I'll take a second just to explain it, right? Mm -hmm. In case any listeners Mm -hmm. might not know what we're talking about, but it is when, you know, usually a party in a divorce is accused of abuse, they actually turn the tables and and say, no, you are the abuser. And actually you are manipulating the children to say either I've abused them or I've abused you. And it's often accompanied with the classic strategy, you know, and also you are mentally ill and crazy, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, women get labeled that and sometimes very early on in these cases. So it's very hard to dismantle 
this view that the court starts out with. And tragically, Mm. that's exactly what happened in Catherine's case. Yeah, yeah. Amy, what you're describing is a tactical maneuver called DARVO. For listeners who may not be familiar with the term, DARVO stands for deny, attack, reverse victim, and offender. And it's a common feature of coercive control. DARVO is a pattern that emerged when Dr. Jennifer Freyd was researching deflection strategies of sex offenders and batterers because it can successfully groom entire social groups. DARVO often shows up hand-in-hand with accusations of parental alienation syndrome, which has incidentally been rejected, as Amy wrote in her piece, by the United Nations, the American Bar Association, and the American Psychological Association. For decades, Parental alienation syndrome has failed to hold up against scientific scrutiny, and so it's not recognized in the DSM-5 nor the ICD-11. Now, in Catherine's case, her children alleged abuse by Alan, who retaliated by darvoing Catherine and making a counterclaim of parental alienation syndrome. Incredibly, despite the accusations of abuse by their children, Alan obtained full custody of them to the exclusion of Catherine, Which begs the question, why do family courts accept claims of parental alienation syndrome when it has been denounced by the American Bar Association? Well, I think, you know, there was a movement in our country for, you know, fathers to have 50-50 custody with mothers, which I fully support, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have two healthy parents, right? But, you know, as we are recording this, right, the United Nations spoke this morning, 4 a.m., you know, U.S. time, and then again at 9.30, and a little bit yesterday, uh, releasing a report to the United Nations um, Council on Human Rights about parental alienation. And I think one of the things the special reporter said on this was that abuse allegations were not given enough weight the best interest of the child was not given enough weight. And this idea that children should be with both parents was weighted so much that it ignored uh, some real dangers to children, right? Mm -hmm. That it seemed to trump everything. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you, I've seen, you know, Catherine left a drop box filled with hundreds, perhaps thousands of documents. And um, it's it's evidenced in the in these court documents that that's exactly what happened. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, her children said they wanted to be with her, yeah. and the court said they're not old enough to do that to decide that, and they didn't believe that she would facilitate the relationship with the dad as well as he would facilitate it. So they were accusing her of parental alienation, and then you know said I think. She could see them like one day um, of the week and couldn't contact them other days at mm-hmm. one point. I mean, so that's how pervasive it is. And I do know from a lot of activists in this family court reform movement that all of these professionals that are part of these cases, parental evaluators, guardian ad litems, attorneys, they are all... And, and judges too, you know, are all schooled in this at their conferences, parental alienation. So they're going into these cases being told, hey, you know, this happens all the time. You know, people make up abuse and, you know, so they're kind of like, I think they're on alert for it. And, 
and they're ready to label something that without really looking at the facts. Yeah, this is intriguing, Amy, because the reality is that the theory of parental alienation syndrome was rejected in special reports by the Presidential Task Force of the American Psychological Association on Violence in the Family, the National Council of Juvenile and Family Court Judges, the American Prosecutors Research Institute, and the National District Attorneys Association. Yet, it appears that the family court still stubbornly maintains these biases, despite the catastrophic harms that have ensued, as in the case of Catherine. And this has been going on since Gardner first introduced parental alienation syndrome in 1980, which begs the question, why does the family court system persist in supporting a debunked theory? Well, that's a good question, right? So many of the people I've interviewed on the topic and many off the record who are legal experts say, you know, there's a lot of money involved. A lot of people make a lot of money on these cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, supervised visits. I remember the first time I found out that a person, a woman or a man in this situation had to pay for every bit of this. The supervision for the visits, you know, therapists, guardian ad litems, parent coordinators. I mean, it adds up. When I interviewed Catherine in 2021, she had spent $600,000 and she went on to spend, I believe, another 400000 at least. Right. But her husband could easily outspend her. Yeah. She said that he spent three to $4 million, which he has denied. Mm. And by the way, I've tried to reach him multiple times and his attorney and his former employer. Uh, he resigned from that firm after um, the public outcry, but he's never responded to me. Mm, I, I don't imagine Alan is best pleased with your superb reporting because you gave Catherine a voice even after she was gone. Now, I just want to take a minute to let listeners know that people are outraged when they read Amy's report on what happened to Catherine. So Alan resigned from his job after his treatment of her came to light. Now, Catherine is still teaching us the importance of speaking out beyond the willful ignorance of the family court system because perpetrators of coercive control move under cover of darkness. They rely on fear and on silence to succeed in oppressing their victims. Catherine lived with this injustice and she died fighting against it. Right. And, you know, that word darkness is, is something Catherine said in her letter. I mean, this isn't an exact quote, but if you see it or excerpts from it, she said this is a secret world. It's almost like an underworld. These deals are happening in darkness. There are ex parte motions, which mean emergency motions that are made, you know, they're supposed to be reserved for true emergencies where a child or someone involved is in immediate danger you know mm -hmm. and so um the court will make a decision quickly and sometimes without the other side there mm -hmm. and those happen in this case these cases all the time for Catherine she got evicted from her house it was an ex parte motion she was living out of her car you know she um all of these things combine um in this system and one last thing, because you asked me why is this happening in the system, everyone I talk to often says, look, no judge wants blood on their hands, right? If, God forbid, something happens to children or a woman or a man involved in a violent way, they don't want to be under the spotlight. And often they will say, well, you know what? I just followed 
the parental evaluator's report. Mm-hmm. So it kind of is the get out of jail free card in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, excuse the pun here. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, because they can say, well, I don't have time to go through all of this, have all these witnesses, I'm overloaded. What does the evaluator say? Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of these evaluators are have, could have their own motivations, believe in parental alienation. Yeah. Or other things going on benefiting monetarily. Yeah. You know, it's it's ironic that family court judges don't want blood on their hands because according to the Center for Judicial Excellence in the United States, a child is killed in a custody dispute every six days. Since they started collecting data in 2008, a total of 944 children were killed by a divorcing or separating parent. Now, the report also showed that the danger signs in these cases are missed by the family court because of the biases you mentioned earlier, Amy. So when we consider the loss of life, the loss of these children's lives, the loss of Catherine's life in a system that's meant to protect families, we can't ignore the dangers created by the legal and psychology industries because they appear to have liberated themselves from the pursuit of justice and instead commercialized child custody disputes in such a way that whoever has the biggest bag of gold wins. Yes, and Dr. Bandy Lee said that in my recent article in Ms. that family courts have abdicated their duty to dole out justice and frankly to protect us and you know she of course wrote the blockbuster book that was on the new york times bestseller list the dangerous case of donald trump and her next book is the dangerous case of family courts and in both cases she said she could not sit on the sidelines and not do something because what she has seen in the family court system where she has testified as an expert witness for years and worked on cases it's just so egregious. Mm. And she had it happen to her own sister, mm. right? But dangerous is is the opportune word here. Yes. And on that note, let's revisit a point you made earlier about the UN Special Rapporteur Reem El Salam's report. During her address at the 53rd regular session of the Human Rights Council, she emphasized the failure of the judiciary and family and child experts to recognize domestic violence against women and children including coercive control situations. Additionally, accusations of parental alienation syndrome were identified as a deliberate tactic to divert attention from harmful dynamics in the household. So for the first time, the issue of the systemic persecution of mothers in the legal system, similar to Catherine's situation, is being discussed at the highest level. Research has shown a link between post-traumatic stress and female mortality with survivors experiencing adverse health outcomes like cardiovascular disease, diabetes 2, hypertension, and metabolic syndromes. Notably, the late Tina Turner was diagnosed with hypertension in 1978, the same year her divorce from Mike Turner was granted. Now, coercive control has short-term and long-term consequences on women's health, and it's essential to recognize these slow-burning femicides for what they are. The legal system 
plays an instrumental role in upholding the conditions for coercive control expressions by clinging to biases that are literally killing people. With increasing systemic restrictions being placed on women in the American legal system, do you think that change is possible? I do think we are at a tipping point, you know, despite the heavy topics that I write about, I am an eternal optimist. And I think that together, I think we can move the needle. I think Dr. Bandy Lee said we are at an explosive point right now. Um, and so I think there are just too many of us to keep quiet any longer, right? I encourage people to share the hashtag, I am Catherine Kasanoff, even if maybe you haven't experienced the same exact thing. And I do want to touch on what you're talking about, about illnesses, because I do believe, of course, what she was going through played a role in Catherine's illnesses, of course. Am I a doctor? Can I say that definitively? No, but I encourage anyone who has not read The Body Keeps the Score by mm -hmm. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk to read that, mm -hmm. because he talks to not just military veterans experiencing PTSD, but people who go through trauma. And, you know, someone, I think it was the group Movement of Mothers posted on Instagram recently, and I thought it was so true. Imagine running from a bear for years. Well, Catherine Kasanoff ran from a bear for four years. Yeah. And she also had to, you know, worry that, you know, at one point she said she was arrested in front of her daughter's school and by four officers and her arms behind her back. And, it, and she said those were false charges. They were dropped. Mm -hmm. Eventually, she was supposedly violating an order and getting too close to her daughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those charges were dropped, but not before somehow the governor's office found out about it and about her arrest, and she was let go. And, of course, I have reached out to Governor Kathy Hochul's office, mm -hmm. and I have not gotten a response. Yeah. From them either. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting. Catherine referred to the pain of being ostracized in her final post. But unlike the people who turned their backs on her in her hour of need, we're standing up for her today and we'll continue to do so going forward. You know, I think people fear what Catherine was up against. Because Dr. Evan Stark once described coercive control as many regimes of patriarchy. And what's galling is that when a woman tries to exit a coercive control relationship, she finds her face pressed up against the glass of a broader system of oppression, the meta-patriarchy, if you will. Yes, I think it's institutional abuse, right? That the very, you know, institutions in our society that we would expect to protect us mm. end up turning on us in, mm. in many ways, you know, I think that one of the reasons I was open to covering Catherine Kasanoff's story is because I had experienced family court myself, not to the degree she had, I did not have a custody battle, but when you first enter into it, and if you are not prepared, I think you are shocked at what goes on. Mm. And I think I thought to myself, wait, this is what happens in America? Like, really? You know, aren't people just appalled? Like, that would never happen. Oh, yes, it happens. And there are so, so many. So I think it is a systemic problem. Um, there is a patriarchy, and there are some women who, who facilitate it, mm -hmm. <laughs> right, um, in, in many cases. And I think 
This is an outgrowth also of some cultural trends we are seeing, which Dr. Bandy Lee talked about in my article where, you know, Trumpism is, you know, causing some men to lash out, protect their manhood and reassert control, a backlash after Me Too. And I think we are seeing that in the courts. I mean, I had an attorney tell me a few years ago in New Jersey that things that would have been considered crazy and off the wall a few years ago after Trump came, you know, to power were seen as okay and expected. So that I I think we can't deny that there is a cultural movement outside the walls of the courthouse and mm. the two are working in concert. Mm. Well, I would say that you can deny it. And there are a lot of people in denial of the zeitgeist. I think that denial is a very effective defense mechanism whenever reality becomes uncomfortable. And denial is often the foothold manipulators use to obtain access and climb into positions of power. I, I think it's important to put this in context by looking at its history. So in the middle of the last century, there was an uptick of coercive control that happened in tandem with the women's equality movement. And you'll notice that people who oppose women's equality often speak lyrically of the 1950s. In other words, they, they paint an idealized picture of life before women's liberation. And let's take a moment to look at what happened after the women's liberation movement gained traction. Not only was there increased coercive control in households, but in the 1970s, we saw the number of mass murderers increase exponentially, and you had perpetrators like Ted Bundy, who committed 30 femicides, and Coral Eugene Watts, who committed 80 femicides, and Rodney Alcala, who is believed to have committed up to 130 femicides. And so the ugly truth is that coercive control and femicides are components of the meta-patriarchy at the local level. And this appears to be what Catherine experienced as she allegedly sought to escape the micro-patriarchal violence in her home, only to discover that it was an extension of the wider system in which we all live. Which leads me to my next question for you, Amy, because you're also a divorce coach and you know this stuff like the back of your hand. So tell me, with everything going on, with women's rights being rescinded in the United States, what is your best advice to mothers caught in the grip of this dysfunctional legal system? I think they have to find a good attorney. And with all due respect to my attorney friends, they are few and far between that understand this topic. Um, even some of my attorney friends say, you know, it's hard to find anyone who will do this fight. Mm -hmm. And so I think you have, I think often attorneys will say, oh, I understand manipulators. I understand narcissists. And they really don't. You know, I've been in situations where I've had to teach my attorney about that. And, and so you've got to find someone who really gets it. Um, I know of one here in my state of Connecticut, um, who I won't name, but who has lived it. And I think it makes her very empathetic and understanding. And, you know, we have a Jennifer's Law here named for Jennifer Dulos. And, um, you know, some women, I wrote a story for Ms. on this, are taking it into their own hands and saying, you know what, if my attorney doesn't want to tick the judge off 
and bring up Jennifer's law, I'm going to bring it up myself. So it's in the record <laughs> about coercive control, financial abuse, whatever it is, the manipulation, and um, they are doing that. So I think finding someone who's not afraid to voice this, because there is this pervasive culture in court of like, don't rock the boat. You know, even Catherine's attorney said that to me, like, well, she was persistent and that was viewed as being unhinged. Really? (laughs) She was attacked with all these allegations. She defends herself and she wants to see her children and she's a trained attorney and that made her unhinged in in their view in some cases. Well, that those are those are the rules and regulations that are Im- enshrined in the system, um, and you know it echoes a quote by Lundy Bancroft, and I, I really have to share it. it. It's quote: "Your abusive partner doesn't have a problem with his anger; he has a problem with your anger." One of the basic human rights he takes away from you is the right to be angry with him, no matter how badly he treats you. He believes your voice shouldn't rise and your blood shouldn't boil. The privilege of rage is reserved for him alone. When your anger does jump out of you, as will happen to any abused woman from time to time, he is likely to try to jam it back down your throat as quickly as he can. Then he uses your anger against you to prove what an irrational person you are. Abuse can make you feel straightjacketed. You may develop physical or emotional reactions to swallowing your anger such as depression, nightmares, emotional numbing, or eating and sleeping problems, which your partner may use as an excuse to belittle you further or make you feel crazy, end quote. Yes, it's like you're not allowed to. So that brings me to my second thing is that you really need a support team. You know, I became, you know, I would say I'm a divorce and post-separation abuse coach. And, you know, I started doing this because I didn't have a buddy like that when I was going through, I was married and divorced twice. And I didn't have that. I think you need a support network. You need someone who understands you because, you know, what these manipulators and coercive controllers do often, as you know, is they break down who you are. Even the strongest of women start doubting their own intuition and feel like you're going crazy because they're trying to make you feel crazy and you need those people who have been there or are going through it and understand that and I run a support group called strong savvy women also which focuses on a lot of these topics but also moving forward I'm big on helping women take their power back because we give up so much financial you know independence right we give up our careers sometimes to take one for the team and stay home with the kids Women should be protected. I, I tell all young women, you know, they should have a prenup. And, you know, I was talking to a client this morning who has been trying to get divorced for three years and she can't, hundreds of thousands of dollars in. Like, and we often talk about how we want to warn young women. Like, yeah. you know, if you get married, you may not be able to get divorced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, prenuptial agreements can prevent a lot of pain and suffering because you can sit down and dispassionately decide child custody and division of assets before there's a power struggle of any kind. The commodification of the family court system means there's money to be made from long drawn out legal processes and there's money to be made from the from using debunked psychological constructs that pathologize women and label them unhinged 
instead of asking what it is that she's reacting to. Yes, exactly. I mean, I live in an affluent county of Connecticut outside New York City, right? And it's often, you know, beware if you marry someone with those resources, because if the tables turn, they have very deep pockets Mm -hmm. to try to get revenge on you in our family court system, sadly, Mm -hmm. sadly, you know, that people with money can do this vexatious litigation, can engage in this legal abuse. Um, And, you know, Catherine said this herself. It's, It's a court system that favors the moneyed party. Might is right. And it seems this mentality is superseding the rule of law and chipping away at human rights. You know, in France, there's this saying that's used whenever there's a problem and it's chercher la femme or look for the woman. And it implies that a woman is always the catalyst in any dispute. And I think it really shows how ingrained misogyny is in the culture. And even though we don't have that saying in the United States, I think we have the same mentality. I don't think that status or money can protect women from the system. Because as you were speaking I thought of Angelina Jolie and her children who alleged abuse and were disbelieved. There's this cognitive bias against women who disclose that seems to lend perpetrators of abuse something akin to diplomatic immunity. Exactly, and that's why that term mutual abuse is a misnomer, should be thrown out. You know, that's no such thing, right? It's that, you know, people at a certain point defend themselves. They need to, Mm -hmm. and... That does not mean necessarily they are abusing the other person. I think that, I think there have been, there has been more of a light shown on this topic, even in our, you know, movies and and TV shows, right? I mean, I wrote a story on Maid and that Netflix series and Bad Vegan and the movie Alice Darling that really exposed psychological abuse and coercive control. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand it and recognize it. I think personally, I think our entire society is suffering from an inability to feel empathy toward each other in so many ways. And I think that plays out here in the divorce world, because I think that often even educated professionals in the field sometimes say, oh, every divorce is messy. Oh, there's always two sides to every story. Yeah, it's it's interesting how, how biases can override logic, education, even reality. When it comes to gender-based violence, there's, there's a victim-blaming mechanism that gets activated when women and girls disclose abuse. The hard truth is there's a tremendous amount of ignorance when it comes to gender-based violence, and this sets women up for institutional DARVO. It's alarming to discover that some people with PhDs and Juris Doctors haven't troubled themselves to develop competency about gender-based violence, but that's the reality. Look what happened last year when a courtroom in Fairfax and some clinical psychologists were used to operate a PR campaign by way of the institutional Darvo of Amber Heard. I think that's a good example because look at what's happened with Angelina Jolie. She has said after she peeked behind the robe of the family court system, she can't look away either. Because after I peeked behind the robe and I saw what was going on, 
I felt compelled to write about it as well. So I think anyone, and Bandy Lee said the same thing, Dr. Bandy Lee, she didn't experience it, but she lived with her sister and saw it firsthand. Her sister's case is eerily similar to mm-hmm. Catherine's. Like she, Bandy said, you know, she was a, worked on the 9-11 rescue efforts, was a hero, uh, worked for a gov- New York state governor, you know, her ex-husband is a top Harvard trained attorney, you know, um, she was deemed mentally unstable and hasn't seen her two children and doesn't even really know why. So, you know, I think anyone who has been exposed to this cannot look away. They cannot look away. And I'm hoping with the light I'm trying to shine on it in my pieces is that America really can't look away. No, we can't keep turning a blind eye to what's happening in the family court system. Which is why your work is so important, because you emphasize the critical need for change. I mean, no courtroom should be used as a venue for post-separation abuse. It's, it's that simple. And I can't stop thinking about the optics of Catherine being handcuffed in front of her children's school. You know, it appears that her, her ex was on a mission to humiliate and degrade her. And we see that kind of dramatic theatrical overkill in my field because a lot of coercive controllers become unfathomably vindictive when the woman they've entrapped and exploited escapes. And so they they lock them into these into never-ending litigation because it's the only way they can still exert control over her life after she's fled. Exactly. I have a client in the Boston area who I met with today actually on Zoom and that's what happened to her. She wanted a divorce and he made her pay. And she is a, a successful executive and smart. And, you know, she ended up in jail for hours. You know, he claimed she abused him. And, you know, he did the whole, you know, turn of the tables thing. Mm-hmm. And he was upset that she wanted a divorce. And now, you know, three years later, she's still trying to get one. Mm-hmm. And, and he said to her, you will pay for this. I will take your children. I will take your job. And she thought, yeah, yeah, he's just saying that. And she said to me, I learned he he meant it. He meant every bit of it. Mm, He's wasting his own money, just keeping it going because it's about revenge. It's about him feeling that way. Like you said, Mm -hmm. redeeming himself, putting himself back in that power position. And it's not about the children, you know, either. It's about... They don't, they, often they don't, I mean, some of the, of the men and fathers, and look, this could be a woman too, but it's more often uh, the dads who are not that involved in the child's life, mm. and then they want custody of them, full custody, sole custody. They don't want the mother to see the child or yeah. children, all of a sudden, yeah. you know, and, and it's about revenge. It's about making them pay. Yeah, that's ex- exactly what it's about, you know, it's. It's uncanny how the same language is used by perpetrators of coercive control when their partners escape. I mean, they literally declare war on on them, they, like saying stuff like like what you mentioned, like you will pay or, you know, I will take everything from you or, or some variation of that, like like she should brace herself for global humiliation. Exactly. Yeah. I have clients who, you know, the ex-husbands or husbands there in the process of divorcing have say 50-50 custody, and then they take off with a girlfriend and leave the kids home alone. Mm. 
like unattended, like for mm-hmm. an overnight. I mean, when they're too young. I mean, so a lot of times they just want to do what they want to do, like you said, and they, it was a badge for them. Yeah. It was a, a trophy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an odd worldview to have in 2023, but, but, you know, it's, it's shaped by the idea that women are chattel and that children born within a marriage are, are property. And through that filter, it becomes about winning the divorce and winning, you know, the child custody dispute. Amy, do you have any final thoughts to share with us about parental alienation syndrome? Right. I think parental alienation is the abuser's, you know, dream tool in their toolbox, right? Because when all else fails, you whip that out and it puts you in a place of power again, right? And so I think, I think that's why it is so important that um, more and more experts and now the United Nations is, is debunking this. And it's, it's not just the U.S., by the way. Like Brazil has a huge problem with this. Other countries, as you know, um, European countries too. So this isn't just a U.S. problem, um, though I know the United States uh, activists certainly gave a lot of input to the United Nations Council that was investigating this. Mm. Thank you, Amy. Thank you for, for sharing your insight with us today and for your incredible reporting on the family court system. And more than anything, I want to thank you for, for honoring Catherine Kazanov's valiant fight and her enduring memory. To learn more about Amy's work, log on to freedomwarrior.info. Amy, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And as you know, Catherine's last wish was that we continue telling her story. So you have done your part. And I just want to say thank you. Guys, please join us in uplifting Catherine Kazanov by sharing this message on your social media and sending it to two friends. I also put links to Amy's articles about Catherine in the show notes. If you find our content helpful, please help us reach our goal of making this a weekly podcast by becoming a Patreon. Be sure to tune in to next week's episode of the Narcissistic Abuse Rehab podcast with the amazing Sandra L. Brown, a pioneer in the field of narcissistic abuse recovery and author of the book, Women Who Love Psychopaths, Inside Relationships of Inevitable Harm. Sandra will be joining us to discuss understanding post-traumatic stress after exposure to pathological narcissism. Guys, that's it for now. Be good to yourself, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>